Hello, thank you for your interest in the Ocean Mind Sangha. Uh, these uh, talks are recorded live. I give them from the south of Mexico, where I live. And they usually happen on Wednesday evenings during our sit, our Wednesday sit. And we offer these talks freely. But if you would like to offer a donation, know that that is always much, much appreciated. Um, your support allows me to dedicate more time to writing and teaching about the Dharma. Uh, it supports the operations of the Ocean Mind Sangha, and it allows us to offer scholarships, especially for classes, uh, for people who might need them. Uh, if you would like to offer a donation, you can visit uh, my website at vanessasuisegoddard.org. Thank you again for your practice and your support. May we purify an ocean of worlds. May we free an ocean of beings. May we see an ocean of dharma. May we realize an ocean of wisdom. May we purify an ocean of activities. May we fulfill an ocean of aspirations. May we make offerings to an ocean of Buddhas. May we practice without discouragement for an ocean of eons. Good evening, everyone. You know, I know that each Wednesday I say how good it is to, to sit with all of you. But each Wednesday I feel how good it is to sit with all of you. And today I was feeling a little tired. It's, it's been a, a long week and a half and, you know, of, of a little too much work. And, you know, sometimes as it leads up to tonight and, and having, you know, prepared whatever teaching I've prepared, you know, sometimes I feel less than all here. And then I sit up and then I take my seat and I look up and see all of your faces and feel you even through this digital air. And I always feel so gladdened and so incredibly fortunate that I'm able to do this and that I'm able to be here with you. So, so thank you for being here and for practicing with me. So today, um, Eric, Eric Geist is doing, he, he did Tangario and so he's doing the student entering ceremony. And Tangario, you may recall, Tangario is the Japanese, Ryo means room, and Tanga means until the morning. And so sitting, um, traditionally, a monastic would sit in a room, actually for seven days, but maybe originally was just the one, the one day having a vigil until the next day, and they would sit with that with that commitment, really with their aspiration, bodhicitta, which is there, has been there, 
and really this step is just making it overt making it explicit making it public and saying certainly to themselves to those of us who are sharing in the path and in this case to me saying this is something that i want to do this is something that is important to me this is something that i want to be central in my life or at least very important in my life therefore i make this commitment as the rest of you will will witness um, because i care and i love myself <laughs> this much that i want to mm, be accountable and also be here for the rest of you right as we do this in sangha so so eric um if you could if you could take your mala as as you know i those of you who have become students i have given each of you a mala and i and i pick the mala according to um a, a feeling really an intuition a sense of what i think might work for you sometimes it's the particular the material the color or colors of the the mala but not in a superficial sense but in in the sense of mm, you know what what goes with with this with this person what i've gotten to know of them and so um, eric has a has a wooden mala that is a a, a green i believe it's a cedar mala um, Eric, because of your, your stability, your, your quiet determination, um, yes, <laughs> that is why I picked it. So if you could take your mala and, and um, you know, yes, so, so you have it folded in your hands and you're going to incense it three times clockwise over your bowl right and i'm going to do the same thing with mine so you can go ahead and do it i'm just going to remove my mic so i can do that and so this mala because uh, we're not using robes uh, you would wear this if you so choose but i recommend using it um, when you um, when you sit and then when we're working together and so you can put it on now yeah and um, as I as I mentioned to you Eric when you're not using it you can keep it on your altar and you know you you want to treat it with a sense of respect with a sense of reverence um really not because it is different from your phone or from your shoe fundamentally but because in this form that we're bonding and that we're forming and in this uh ceremony that we're doing you know we're we're imbuing it this this religious object with a particular significance right a particular meaning that hopefully most importantly will remind you 
of your aspiration, your determination to practice and your patient, patience to do it in the face of challenges, difficulties, periods of darkness, of dryness, etc. So let this be a reminder. And so now if you could, if you could stand and you're going to do three bows to your seat, which is in one sense, your spiritual home, right? We know this is our Buddha seat. And traditionally, in a, in a monastery, monastics would quite literally live under cushions. They would sleep there, they would sit there, they would eat there, and so it would very much be their home. For us, it's a little bit different, but this is still, once again, our, our deliberate, delineated sacred space, our, our place of practice. And um, that when we approach it, when we take this seat, this Buddha seat, that what we're really doing and what we're saying is, I am sitting as a Buddha, I am sitting as an awakened being, I am sitting in the midst of that bodhicitta for the sake of my own awakening, my own liberation, and that of everyone, everyone else in the world, past, present, and future. No pressure. So you would now do uh, three bows to your seat. And as you do that, really keep in mind that, that refuge, right? That you're, you're, you're taking refuge in this, in this uh, seat of awakening with Buddha, with Dharma, and with Sangha. And then if you wouldn't mind just turning this way, turning to the camera. And so uh, we'll just do a standing bow to, to one another. And if I could ask all of you who are here present in your mind to, to, um, to make a wish, to make a, 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 an aspiration for Eric in his practice. And Eric, may you be clear, particularly when life is confusing. May you be kind, especially when it is difficult. And may you and I, may we always regard one another with respect, with infinite care, establishing and maintaining bodhicitta as our base as our basis, as our home. Congratulations. Now you can take your seat. So welcome formally into the, the Ocean Mind Sangha. Welcome to this gathering of Buddhas, Bodhisattvas. You know, and the reason I have been speaking a little bit more about this teacher-student relationship um, is because, you know, things do change and because for some people 
you know, it, it, it becomes blurry or because we forget. And I just want to keep reiterating that the reason that we're here is hopefully because we want to wake up, right? That any other reason, you know, like that companionship and that support is of course valid and important, but it's really secondary to bodhicitta. That the relationship that we have, although it develops over time and we may be, you know, we, we may develop other levels of relationship, you know, like working together or being friends, etc. that really the primary uh, connection that we have is that we have committed to help one another be and stay awake. And it's good to, to remember that because pretty much if we forget, at some point we're, we'll be disappointed. You know, when, when, when people are looking for something else from this relationship, at some point they'll be disappointed. And so, so it's a reason that, I, that I've been, you know, bringing it up a little bit more also understanding that, you know, as time passes, you know, sometimes things change, but this commitment that I, that I make to you, I consider done. <laughs> and so, so, um, uh, it, it is, it is in my heart and in my, uh, now, uh, an integral part of my own practice. And kind of related to that, I also just want to say, um, because Norm and Alexandra and hopefully Adam are going to be taking Jukai in a couple of months, and there's at least a couple of you who have expressed interest in, in doing that, that also, you know, that, that like becoming a student, um, First of all, you, you would ask, right? It's not something that I tell you, okay, you, you, you're ready, although we will, we will agree on a time when, when it seems like it would make sense for you to do it. But first of all, you have to ask to take the precepts. And that really you would be doing that when you're already living that life, right? You're already living your life as, as a, according to the Buddhist precepts. You know, and, and, and a Buddhist, you could say, understanding, a Buddhist view of the world, right? So it's not so much that you do it in order to feel inspired in your practice and in order to get like a little, a little nudge, although that will hopefully happen, but the reverse, that you're already a student of the Dharma and you just want to make that, you know, public, that you're already living your life according to the moral and ethical teachings, according to how you, you see, you understand yourself living a life of freedom, living a life of service, to whatever extent you can do that. And so now wearing this rakusu is really just a, a, a little reminder that says, oh yes, I'm doing that, especially when we forget, right? Especially when we can't or won't practice a precept when something gets in the way and as i have often said it's not the fact that we fail it's what happens afterward right how do we take responsibility how do we acknowledge how do we take the next next step forward so all of this skillful means you know a string of beads 
it's just a piece of wood, fabric, inherently, it's nothing. Well, it's a piece of fabric that somebody made, actually, it's not nothing. But you know, you know, my t-shirt is a piece of fabric. But because we together imbue them with meaning, and because, you know, I do do a little liturgy around it, that we're, we're, we're deciding this is important. This is worthy of my, my attention, my care. And therefore, let me live my life in alignment with that. Okay. So this is the way you're already practicing. And you're just stating that publicly. Now, because practice, like anything we do over time, requires attention, requires maintenance. You know, I've said this before, at some point, we won't feel like doing it. At some point, it won't feel like it's working. And maybe at some point, it won't be working. It's important to be able to, to discern that. I've also been speaking about this, you know, to be able to reflect and think, one, am I doing it? And two, is it working? Do I actually feel more centered in my life? Do I feel more aligned with the way that I want to live? Do I feel more at peace? Am I kinder? Am I more patient? Am I more generous? And if, if there's a gap, between what we see and what we want, and to see, okay, then what, what do I need to do? What do I need to adjust? How do I need to practice? So we need to be able to discern. You know, maybe we've just gotten bored, or we've gotten discouraged, or we've gotten complacent, which happens. Maybe we need to reinvigorate our aspiration. And so, it's definitely, mm, I don't know if it's inevitable, but it's commonplace that all of us, you know, that we go through periods where it feels more or less urgent, more or less relevant, more or less engaging. And sometimes the reasons that we, that we do it or that we've done it change or develop. And so, if we want to continue to do it, we need to change and develop with them. And so tonight I wanted to explore eight ways that we can look at the Dharma, that we can look at our practice, hoping that this investigation will tell us something about what we can do when things have gotten a little stale or a little rote. And these aren't in any chronological order, because there is no such thing right, when it comes to waking up. They're also not a, um, a conclusive list by any means. I mean, I made it up, essentially. <laughs> but there are eight different ways, different ways to, to look at what we're engaging. And so the first is to, to see the Dharma as stress reduction. And by this, I don't mean superficially. I don't mean a tranquilizer. I really mean as the reduction of dukkha, right? Of the suffering that comes 
with being human. And so, brief review, there are three types of suffering. The suffering of suffering, dukkha, dukkha, which is our physical and emotional discomfort. You know, kind of like our, our ordinary suffering. The suffering of change, viparnima dukkha, when we resist the truth of impermanence. Right? It's really, I want what I want now and always. So it's a kind of, a kind of clingy suffering. And then the suffering of existence, sankara dukkha, the profound unsatisfactoriness of existence. What I've spoken of as this kind of background shimmering. We are, therefore, we suffer. You know, it seems to just come with the human condition. And so we come to practice to, to reduce these three types of suffering before we can even name them, before we can even say what they are. But we recognize on some level that we practice because we hurt, because we don't want to lose the things we have, the people we love, or just because. Because we're living, and that is hard. And then we find out about Buddhism, we learn about the Four Noble Truths, and we think, oh, there's a name for this. And we hear about the Noble Eightfold Path and we realize, oh, there's a way to work with this. How amazing. How incredible. I'm not crazy. There's nothing wrong with me necessarily. Right? And we begin to practice. And the wonderful thing is that it works. It works. After a little while, our suffering diminishes. The downside is that our suffering diminishes. And then we think, well, why should I practice? Why should I practice anymore? I mean, things are good enough. And at this point, indeed, many people do stop practicing. And if that's something that we've chosen, more power to us. Right? We can move on without guilt, without shame, without remorse, and do the things that we really want to do. Or we can choose to keep going and see what else the Dharma might have to offer us and the world. But in order for this to happen, it has, we have to make sure that, that our relationship to the Dharma is not transactional, right? I'll practice if I get this and this, and if I don't. When we make any relationship transactional, we're bound to be disappointed sooner or later. And so it can't be transactional. It needs to be aspirational. You know, maybe we think, how far can I take this? How much can I see? How free can I be in this life, in this lifetime? The second way to look at Dharma is Dharma as refuge. 
And Dharma as a tool of profound rest. So when, when we've gotten past like the, the gross suffering of our lives, you know, we're, we're okay generally. And we now can sense that there's a deeper level of peace that's possible, of joy, of satisfaction. We think, as I said, well, why, why should I stop when there's more? More to see, more to let go of, more to understand, more to live. There are ways in which I can rest my own body and mind. Right, find a, a deeper, more lasting relaxation. Maybe I don't need to walk around clenching my jaw all the time. Maybe I, maybe I don't need to live with a constant low-grade anxiety. Maybe I don't always have to be working around my fear. Maybe what the sutras say is true, and there's a way to actually find rest within all these. Remember Master Dogen saying, Zazen is the gate, the Dharma gate of ease and joy. How was he practicing that he could say that? How was he practicing that Zazen was not just, you know, another thing to do? to check off on the list, that it wasn't burdensome, that it wasn't a matter of discipline, but actually a matter of ease and joy. And we can think, well, you know, I mean, he didn't have to deal with crying babies, mounting bills, aging parents. But he had to deal with hundreds of difficult monks, difficult rulers, land issues, political issues, just the weather they were in Japan, you know, sitting without heat. And if you read his writings, you realize, you know, he didn't have it all figured out. It wasn't all like cozy. And yet he could still say Zazen was the gate of ease and joy. And he doesn't strike me from his writings as a particularly chill guy. But he was essentially saying, in peace and turmoil, in sickness and in health, we can let the Dharma be our refuge. At least we can consider the possibility that maybe, maybe that is true. We can see the Dharma as mind training. Bruce Lee famously said, under duress, we do not rise to our expectations, but fall to our level of training. Right? When push comes to shove, when we're struggling, we don't all of a sudden become larger, more magnanimous, kinder and more patient. He said we fall to the level of our training Let's say we just kind of slide down to the level of our training. Therefore, why not make our training as far-reaching as we can make it? 
First, we just clear the field of junk, of debris, our mental field, our emotional field, so that we can make room for all aspects of ourselves, so that we can make room for others. And when the field is clear, we go about deliberately identifying and watering the seeds that need to be watered and the seeds that need to be left alone. And we do it when we're not under duress, so that when we are, it comes more naturally. You think, you know, I can't get out of bed, but I'm going to lie here with my eyes closed and I'm going to follow my breath because this is something that I can do. Because I've been trained to do this because it will be my refuge when I'm feeling so shitty that I can, I can barely move. And it is a matter of discipline. It's definitely a matter of discipline. It's not make yourself do something, but it's really, as I often say, choosing to do what we want to do and what we have to do. I was rereading The Little Prince and he has that great, that beautiful quote, that beautiful passage about the baobabs. And he says, and this is the, the, the narrator saying, you know, there were on the planet where the little prince lived, as on all the planets, there were good plants and bad plants. In consequence, there were good seeds from the good plants and bad seeds from the bad plants. But seeds are invisible. They sleep deep in the heart of the earth's darkness until someone among them is seized with the desire to awaken. Such an interesting way to say it. The seed is seized with a desire to awaken. And then this little seed will stretch itself and begin, timidly at first, to push a charming little sprig inoffensively upward toward the sun. And if it is only the sprout of a radish or the sprig of a rose bush, then one would just let it grow wherever it might wish. But when it is a bad plant, like the baobabs, which would take over the little princess planet, he says one must destroy it as soon as possible, the very first instant that one recognizes it. It is a question of discipline, the little prince said. It is a question of training. Which is helped by the next way of seeing the Dharma, which is investigation. An investigation really is the direct result of acknowledging what we don't know, which is most of it, if we're honest. It's the practice of very carefully and deliberately stoking our own sense of wonder and curiosity and excitement, especially at those times when we're feeling less than inspired. 
you know that famous koan, Fayan is um, traveling from place to place. And he stops at Dijang's place, and Dijang says, what are you doing? And Fayan says, I'm going on a pilgrimage. And Dijang says, what is the purpose of your pilgrimage? And Fayan thinks about it, and he says, I don't know. And Dijang says, ah, not knowing is most intimate, or not knowing is closest. And so not knowing is one side of this investigation, and one thing to know is the other. Right? We can't be passive about our Dharma practice. As my teacher Dadaroshi used to say, you can't be a spectator sport in Zen. And I've always said, you get out of it exactly what you put in. And so we don't wait for inspiration to strike or for insight to just appear. We actively ask about what we don't yet understand, which means we have to know enough to ask, right? Which means we have to study, we have to practice, we have to relate to the teachings, we have to bring ourselves to the teachings. Because there is an element of ripening what we don't understand right now, we hope that we'll understand at some point down the line. But we don't just wait for that to happen. We, we, we make that happening through our practice. The flower takes a while to bloom, but each day we water it. Each day we give it a little light. Then there's dharma as a tool to build resilience. Instead of turning away from suffering, we turn toward it so that we can be free. Like Atisha, who kept his, his crabby attendant close. You know, he was cranky, he was difficult. And so he said, well, just, just stay close so that I have an opportunity to practice. Now, we don't have to make ourselves suffer. Life gives us plenty, plenty of opportunity. The aching back, the difficult neighbor, the crying child, the sick partner. And so instead of thinking in the face of a challenging situation, why me? We ask, how do I practice? And it's not that why me is not, I mean, in some ways, I mean, it's a very natural question. We want to understand why this happens to me and not to another. But really, if you really look at it, it's a very... It's not one of those helpful questions. Even if somebody was to be able to tell you conclusively why you have this particular set of circumstances and not another, you would still be left 
with the fact of having to practice them. And so, the question really is, how do I practice? And remember, we don't have to be heroic. Because sometimes our energy and our motivation fluctuate. That is normal. That is very natural. We don't need to be heroic. We just need to be consistent. You know, we just keep at it, little by little by little. Like that drop of water that slowly is boring down through the rock. We turn toward instead of turning away from. Probably one of the hardest things to do. Probably one of the hardest things to do. And I had this image because I was reading this story about this um, Mexican entrepreneur. You know, the, the beaches here get, get really choked with um, seaweed, with sargasso, uh, sargassum, uh, especially in the hot months, which now is most of the time. And everybody complains, the tourists complain, and it breaks down, you know, when it, when it decays, it breaks down and releases, um, um, I think it's hydrogen sulfide, so it's also noxious. And everybody complains, everybody turns away. And this man who's a farmer by, by training, remembered that when he was young, he was, a, a, he was addicted to drugs. And he said, it was like that. Nobody wanted to look at me. Everybody turned away. He said, I was a burden to society. And one day he looked at the seaweed and he thought, I can do something with this. And so he harvests it and, and mix it, mixes it with other organic material, I don't, I don't exactly know what, and he makes it into bricks. And so he's building homes all over the state. He's, he's funded by the UN, and he's won all these prizes. I thought that was so beautiful, such a, such a beautiful example of, of turning toward instead of turning away which is what, what is needed for us. And that segues nicely into realignment, Dharma as realignment. As we turn toward practice, as we take steps to further or to better align ourselves, with the way things are, with awakening. That's when we can say, you know, we don't sit to change the world. We sit to not be changed by the world. To sit and stand and live from our truth. A friend of mine was saying, you know, she's the creative director in a company, and one of the people in her staff presented this project and the directors, higher, higher ups said, oh, you know, not this, not this. So you should do that, that, this other thing. 
And she went to my friend, and my friend said, don't do what other people tell you. Do what you think is right. Yes, exactly. And she said to her, you're a designer. You're an artist. And you have certain skills. Do what you think is best and then present it so that others will come along. So others will also align themselves with your vision. This is what I want so badly, that each of you be able to stand on your own two feet. That we be able to own our lives fully, whatever they bring, even if we stumble, even if we fall, that it's still your own power. And then coming to the home stretch, Dharma as sacred activity. Our Dharma, our practice becomes the embodiment of the sacredness we see all around us. It becomes a vehicle for our devotion. I've been quoting Bodhisattva never disparaging from the Lotus Sutra, who would look at strangers, he would look at friends, and he would say, I have profound reverence for you. I would never dare disparage you. Why? Because you are all practicing the Bodhisattva way and are certain to attain Buddhahood. I have profound reverence for you because you too are a Buddha. And not just people, but animals and things, every last corner of the world does not fail to stand in its own completeness. And if we could really see this, we would have to, as Merton said, fall on the ground and worship one another. God, imagine such a world. Instead, instead of the, the poison, the venom, the, the anger that we so often inflict on one another, that we so often inflict on ourselves. To be able to say to those parts of ourselves that we would rather not look at, that we are embarrassed about, that we're ashamed of, I have profound reverence for you because you too are a Buddha. The confusion of my mind, the anger of my mind, the the jealous being, the petty being, the selfish being, you too are a Buddha. And then finally, Dharma is the vehicle for love. Need I explain? I'll let Leonard Cohen say it. He said, what is a saint? 
A saint is someone who has achieved a remote human possibility. It's actually not so remote at all. It is impossible to say what that possibility is. I think it has something to do with the energy of love. And then he says, it is a kind of balance that is their glory, right? This person, this bodhisattva. It's a kind of balance that is their glory. They ride the drifts like an escaped ski. Their course is the caress of the hill. Their track is a drawing of the snow in a moment of its particular arrangement with wind and rock. It's art, in other words. Something in them so loves the world that they give themselves over to the laws of gravity and chance. Their house is dangerous and finite, but they are at home in the world. They can love the shape of human beings, the fine and twisted shapes of the heart. It is good to have among us such people, such balancing monsters of love. That's one way to think of us bodhisattvas, as fierce monsters, beasts <laughs> of love. And you know, there's actually a ninth, there's actually a ninth way. And that is Dharma, to practice Dharma just because. Just because. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you would like to listen to more talks, you can visit my website at vanessasuisegoddard.org. And if you would like to offer a donation, know that they're always much, much appreciated. Uh, they allow me to dedicate more time to writing about and teaching the Dharma. They uh, support the operations of the Ocean Mind Sangha. And they also allow us to offer scholarships for people who might need them. Uh, so we always, always very much appreciate your practice and your support. Thank you.